So the title today is It Is Finished. We're going to be focusing on pretty much what we saw in the very beginning of that video. And again, it's going to be John 19 through 20. Some of you may remember this event from the news almost 20 years ago now. On May 1st, 2003, a Navy S-3 Viking aircraft started its final approach to an aircraft carrier off of the coast of California. And that's not unusual. Normally, this aircraft launches off the carrier because it goes looking for submarines and that might be threatening the carrier group and sinks them if he, they're able to find them. However, on this day, it had a very special designation. Its designation that day was Navy One because it carried the President of the United States, who at that time was George W. Bush. President Bush was landing on the aircraft carrier to congratulate them from returning from the Persian Gulf. The USS Abraham Lincoln had participated in the longest deployment of any aircraft carrier ever during that time in the war um, in Iraq. And many of us remember the banner that flew above President Bush as he gave a speech that said, Mission Accomplished. It was at, at that day that President Bush told us that all the mil major military operations had ceased in the nation of Iraq. And although traditional ground operations had indeed ceased as far as moving huge armies and tanks and trucks and all that kind of stuff around, what began that day was a protracted insurgency that led to a lot of urban combat and a guerrilla war against U.S. and coalition troops. There's a little bit of a miscalculation on the part of the president's administration during that time of how the Middle East was going to react to the fall of Iraq and its dictator, Saddam Hussein. However, the Bible records a very similar statement here in John 19.30, and Jesus saying, it is finished. In his case, his mission was truly accomplished. And it turned out to be absolutely true. So today we're going to look at what Jesus meant by saying, it is finished. We're going to look at everything that is involved with that statement. But let's start out in prayer. Father God, we thank you, Lord. I thank you, Father, for this Gospel of John series. I thank you, Father, for the journey you've led us through. And I ask, Father, that in the next couple of weeks, you just place a capstone of it. The whole purpose of this series was so that we may believe. It is all wrapped up in that statement that John wrote these things so that we may believe. So I ask, Father, that we take Jesus' statement this morning. It is finished and that we believe in the words that he gave us. Father God, I ask this in your name. Amen. So this morning we're going to be dissecting this statement a little bit. We're going to be looking at several questions that will help us understand the implications of Jesus' just very brief saying here from the cross that it is finished. We're going to see how it is a statement of victory and it is a statement of finality for all of us. So the first question we would ask when we're looking at this statement is, who is Jesus speaking to? Who's he talking to? In order to understand exactly what Jesus was saying, we first have to determine who he's speaking to. And I believe that every word that Jesus spoke, and specifically the words that he spoke from the cross, were very intentional and very specific in their meaning, and even who he was speaking to. So I would submit to you today that the first and primary person that he is speaking to at this point is his father. He is speaking to Father God. Those three words, it is finished, come from one Greek word, tenelaste. 
And during this time in history, that word tetelaste was a common word. It was used in everyday life. The primary way it was used is as a servant reporting to his or her master or an employee reporting to his or her boss or a servant reporting to a king that it is finished. That assignment I have been given, it is complete. And if you were to look up that word in the Greek dictionary... The definition would be, as Jesus used it, it is finished. And depending on the tense that was used, because it was, it was a Greek verb, it could also mean it is stands finished and it will always be finished. It is over. It is complete. It is done. And these words specify not the end of Jesus' life. That's not what he was referring to. He's referring to the completion of his of his mission and his task on earth. The verb tense in this case is perfect for all you, if there's any English majors out there. It is a perfect verb tense in the Greek. It is finished. The purpose of his life has been completed and the consequences of this work will be enduring. They will have no end. Any one of us who has been in the military knows that when you're given an order or an assignment or a mission, we say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, snap a salute, and then we go on to do the mission. That's one half of obeying the order. The next part about obeying the order is coming back to the person who gave you an order and to telling them that what you have given me to do is finished. That's what Jesus is accomplishing here. He has been given his instructions by the Father. He has been given his mission. And now this mission is complete and the work on earth here is done. So Jesus is saying in all tenses of this Greek verb, it is finished, it stands finished, and it's always going to be finished. There's nothing to add. There's no cleanup. There's nothing left to do that's going to make this any better. Jesus has paid it all. He is done. It is finished. And while Jesus was speaking primarily to the Father here, his words echo into the spiritual realm and were heard by a completely different audience than the people who were immediately surrounding the cross. And that audience was the forces of darkness. Now, I would imagine that if hell ever throws a party, they were having a good time at this point. They think they have won. They think they've won this war that has been going on for over 4,400 years. They are hanging that mission accomplished banner over the, the doorway of their hall. They think they've actually accomplished what Frederick Nietzsche would say 1,800 years later, that God is dead. They think that Satan has won the war. And if a fallen spiritual being can experience any amount of pleasure or joy at that time, it was at this moment. They think that it's over. They won. But they're about to have a rude awakening when they learn that death has been swallowed up in victory. Amen. More about that in a few minutes because there's one other audience that I want to talk about this morning that we're hearing Jesus' words, and that was his followers. I think when Jesus said these words, I know God is spirit and, and that, and I believe that, but I, just, just in how he reacts emotionally, I believe he had tears in his eyes at this point. I believe he was mourning the death of his son. But I also believe that his heart was full of joy for what his son had just accomplished. When Jesus said these words, his followers on earth had lost all hope. 
and thought everything that they had done for three and a half years was a waste of time and that it was over. Although Jesus said it is finished, the understanding of what he meant would not come until much later. In fact, even after the resurrection, after Jesus has been seen by hundreds of people, most of his followers never really understood by what he meant by it is finished. It wasn't until the Holy Spirit came. It wasn't until the Apostle Paul started writing his epistles and teaching the church exactly what Jesus did for us that his suffering and death and resurrection really come into meaning. Really, did they start to understand the fullness of what he was saying. You see, you and I have something the early church didn't have, and that is this book. We have the complete revelation of God. It's often been said that the Bible is basic instructions before leaving earth. This contains the entire revelation of God that he wants us to know about him. Does it contain everything about God? No, no book could ever contain everything about an infinite God. But it contains everything we need to know about him. We have something the early church didn't even have during that time. We are blessed to know that not only is it finished, but we also know what was finished. And that's what we're going to look at next, is what is Jesus saying is finished. Max Lucado has a great way of summarizing exactly what Jesus was saying here when he wrote that the history-long plan of redeeming man was finished. The message of God to man was finished. The works done by Jesus as a man on earth were finished. The task of selecting and training ambassadors was finished. The job was finished. The song had been sung. The blood had been poured. The sacrifice had been made. The sting of death had been removed. It is over. And one of the most significant things that happened upon the death of Jesus showed us exactly what was finished. And we see it in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew 27, 50, it says that when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Jewish historians tell us that this curtain in Herod's temple was impressive. It was 60 feet high and 40, or 4 inches thick. They said it was a, as thick as a, a breath of a man's hand. He said you could attach teams of horses to each side and try to pull it apart and they couldn't do it. That's how strong this curtain was. The most holy, it guarded and separated the most holy place or the holy place from the most holy place. Priests could always could go into the holy place, but only the high priest could go into the most holy place, and that was only once a year. The curtain represented the sin of humanity separating us from God's presence. The length and breadth and height of that curtain was a formidable and physical reminder to anyone who sought God that there is no human way to get to the Father. The curtain was impenetrable through any effort that we could make. That is until Jesus said, it is finished. I have said before that when I read the Bible, I read anything really, I create mental images in my head of the things that, uh, that, that must have happened in the way that it had to happen. And I have a, a picture of, in my mind of Jesus breathing his last breath as he gave up his spirit to the Father. 
and his father reaching down to that curtain through the tears, through all the emotions that he had to be feeling at that point and just ripping that thing in half as an exclamation point to Jesus saying it is finished. There is no more separation between God and man. I have paid the price. And not only did Jesus remove the barrier that separated us from God, but he gave us four additional benefits. The first benefit was the atonement or the payment for the sin that we had, had done. Christian author and theologian Warren Worby writes, none of the Old, sacrifice, Old Testament sacrifices could take away sin. Their blood only covered sin. But the Lamb of God shed his blood, and that blood can take away the sins of the world. It reminded me when I was growing up, the lakefront in Kenosha, because we're on Lake Michigan, it's lined with huge, large boulders that serve as a breakwater from the waves coming in and off uh, Lake Michigan. And when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, all the boulders and the chunks of concrete that were lining Lake Michigan and places that people could drive along the lake, they're all covered in graffiti. Just absolutely painted everywhere on them with graffiti. And most of it was harmless stuff. You know, Sue loves Ryan and, and just different things like that. Packers rule and bears stink and, you know, all that kind of stuff. There's even some kind of um, cool little um, uh, pictures that people would draw on them. But occasionally, and over the years, some of it was also pretty profane. Well, a new mayor got elected and he decided to clean up the lakefront. That was one of his things that, that he ran on. He needed to clean up that lakefront to bring more people into town and want to spend time in Kenosha. So he said, we're going to clean up the lakefront. He went and he assigned city workers over the summer to go and paint over all this graffiti, paint over all these rocks, make them white and, and just look a lot better. And it did. It looked great. When he was done, it looked great. I mean, it, you, didn't, you could drive down the lake and you weren't, getting, you know, nasty things thrown into your mind. However, winter came. A combination of weather coming off the lake, snow and ice beat against all that new layer of paint, ripped it right off the rocks. And the revealed the graffiti that was underneath it. You see, the local government had underestimated the problem. They thought they could just cover up the graffiti. So then they came up with a different solution. They replaced the breakwaters with new rock and then increased police patrols to make sure nobody was painting on them and limited public access to certain parts so that they would remain clean. You see, prior to Jesus saying it was finished, all the ceremony, all the sacrifices, all the rituals that the Old Testament people had to go through, all it did was paint over graffiti. That's all it did. Once you stepped outside the temple and the winds of life or conflict smacked into you or temptation overrode you, all that sin underneath the whitewash became obvious again. That's why atonement isn't just a whitewash. It's the blood of Jesus washing the sin away and then creating a new heart in its place. It's replacing the rock that the graffiti was written on in the first place. The second benefit of it is finished is that Jesus' death conquered sin and death for us. 
1 John chapter 1, verse 7 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That Greek word to cleanse is where we get our word catharsis from. It's catharizeal. It means to declare clean, make clean, or purify something. Biblical Greek scholar Kenneth West says, while we are having fellowship with him, the blood of Jesus, his son, keeps, us, keeps constantly cleansing us from sins of omission, sins of ignorance, and sins that we know nothing about in our lives because we have not grown in grace enough to see that they are a sin. These would prevent our fellowship with God if this divine provision of the constant cleansing away of the defilement of sin in our lives had not been taken care of by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews 9.14. He says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In conquering sin, Jesus also conquered the consequence of sin, which is death. Author of Hebrews again says, But now... But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory of honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. He paid it all. John MacArthur says in his commentary on Hebrews, we see the extent of Christ's humiliation in his death. Angels cannot die, but Jesus came to, God, to die. Now think about this, what John MacArthur writes. It really made me think this week. He went so far beneath the angels that he did something that they could never do. His death was not easy or cost less. It was a suffering death. Christ's exit from the land of the living was not calm and peaceful. It was accompanied by outward torture and inner agony. The death he tasted was the curse of sin. What Jesus felt while dying on the cross was a total agony of every soul in hell for all eternity put together and suffered in six hours. All the punishment for all the sin of all the time, that was the depth of his death. He was guilty of no sin, yet he suffered for all sin. God sent his son and his son willingly came to redeem man. As the book of Galatians says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law. Jesus in his death purposed to die as a substitute for anyone. And it is only by the son tasting death as a man for man that we are free to die, free from death. Historically, kings have had someone taste their food to protect them from the possibility of poisoning. Anybody ever seen that in a movie where a servant will taste something before they hand it to the king? The cup of poison that Satan tried to poison us with was drained to the dregs by Jesus Christ. He substituted his own death for ours and released us to live with God. 
The third thing that was finished was Jesus' death causes reconciliation to God. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 5, but God demonstrated his own love toward us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if we were, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, we also rejoice with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received the reconciliation. And again, a Greek word, that reconciliation, it means to return favor with, receive onto, with favor, or to put somebody in to friendship with God. You see, the Apostle Paul knew his job. The Apostle Paul knew that his job was not to reconcile people to God. His job was to proclaim what Jesus had already done. Jesus is the one who got to say, it is finished. Paul does not conceive it as his task to reconcile God to us. God has already done that to himself. God did all the work. Our job is to proclaim it. Jesus is our reconciliation. He bought the justice, he bought God's justice and God's love, or he brought, I'm sorry, God's justice and God's love together and created a way for himself to escape the punishment we rightly deserve by taking it on to himself. What a friend we have in Jesus, amen? The last thing I want to look at today is back where we started, and that is mission accomplished. The mission that Jesus speaks to being finished began not at the arrest of Jesus, but it began at Nazareth. It began with an angel talking to a young teenage girl. It started with Mary believing that the word of God to her was true. Compare and contrast that to Eve, who didn't believe the word of God, and look what happened. Mary believed, and from her came the Savior of us all. The mission also started with a man who was feeling deep emotional pain, had every reason to ignore God's word to him at that point. He thought his fiancée had been unfaithful, but he also believed the word of God to him. And compare that to Adam, who didn't trust the word of God. And look what happened. The initial obedience that they both had to the word of God to them led them to a little town called Bethlehem to a stable and to a manger. All these things we've been talking about today, this is where it started. Jesus saying it was finished was him describing a mission that began at his annunciation by Gabriel to where he is right now, giving up his spirit to God after fulfilling his mission here on earth. Last weekend we saw it portrayed in real life at Harvest Home Farms when we did our living nativity. The theme of that nativity is a script that Dr. Larry Gunthrie wrote called One Silent Night. It's a script that leads people through the entire Christmas story. We see the shepherds, we see wise men, we see Joseph and Mary holding the baby Jesus. All the elements of the Christmas story are portrayed by dozens of volunteers. 
But the Christmas story is incomplete unless you consider where it ends. This morning I'm going to read from the last part of the script that to me, that me as one of the innkeepers act out for those who visit. During this time I initially have people face me, but at this point I change position so that they have to face, by facing me they are looking at a cross on a hill that is lit up. And the script says this, it's hard to believe that such a tiny baby would have been sent on such a mission. His tiny hands and feet would grow only to be pierced through and into the rugged planks of a blood-stained cross. That God could love somebody like me and love me that much is hard to believe. But he does love me and he does love you too. That baby born one silent night demonstrated the love of God for all of us. For God so loved the world, he gave us his one and only son, that whoever will believe in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Do you believe? The entire message of the Gospel of John had the statement, so you might believe. Jesus said it is finished. He has done the work for you. He is handing you a gift right now and asking you to accept it. That is your responsibility, simply to accept the gift he's given you and believe in him as your Lord and your Savior. Do you believe? Father God, it's during this time of year that the message of Christmas gets obscured through the commercialism of the world. And I ask, Father, that during this time of Christmas, you will make it abundantly clear in our minds what the true meaning of Christmas is. It's all about you. And it's all about this time that we read about today, that it is finished. You have done the work. And all we need to do is accept it. So, Father, if there be anyone here who has not accepted it yet, I ask, Father, that you, by the Holy Spirit, touch them in their heart of hearts right now. That you help them confess that they are a sinner, that they need your forgiveness, and that they are willing to follow you the rest of their life. It is that simple. And, Father, I know that many of us have, all, we all have our issues. We all have those those sins that so easily entangle us. I ask, Father, that you would enable us to turn our back from those and walk away from them once and for all. That we will not be entangled by them any longer. That you would set us free from those things, Lord. Because the time is running short. Your return is at hand. And we want to be a people that has made ourselves ready to shine for you in these last days and to bring as many of, of the people outside of the church as we can into the kingdom of God. Father God, I thank you, Lord. I thank you for everything you have done for us, Father. Help us to remember all of it during this time of year.